Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, The Centrist Podcast. I am your host, Will Barber-Taylor. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Josiah Mortimer, co-editor of Left Foot Forward and uh, comms representative. He does the comms for the Electoral Reform Society. Welcome to the podcast, Josiah. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, so the first thing that I would um, like to ask you about, and I know this is something you've been uh, focusing on uh, recently quite a bit at the Electoral Reform Society, is voter ID, the issue of um, voter ID, which is being uh, proposed uh, by the government mandatory uh, photo uh, voter ID. Um, why do you think that photo voter ID, as proposed by the government, would be um, something that would have a negative effect on the electoral process? Well, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, this is a solution that's looking for a problem um you know that our, our elections are safe and secure in the uk and you know we see year on year there are very very few allegations of wrongdoing mm. in fact when you look at you know the figures you find that when it comes to sort of wrongdoing in in politics the vast 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 majority funnily enough aren't about people sort of dressing up and impersonating each other at the polling station um you know it's about wrongdoing by parties it's about misinformation on leaflets people not including imprints and so you know i think when we have a a system that's just generally as as warped as we have in in westminster both for electing mps and and also the fact that nine million people are are missing from the electoral roll i think it strikes a lot of people as a very weird priority coming out of the pandemic to think you know this is the policy that that we need to be doing as as a priority to be forcing everyone to to bring an id to the polling station and, um, you know, there's a really big coalition groups that are, that are working on this now. Um, and I think a, there's a real sort of head of steam growing to, in opposition to these plans, which, you know, they're, they're a sledgehammer's cracking up, really. They're <laughs> totally unnecessary, expensive. And, uh, you know, I think they'll do our, our democracy a lot of damage. Mm. Now, one of the areas that um, people have commented that um, voter ID potentially could have a negative uh, effect on uh, is with uh, minority communities. Could you explain um, how specifically it might have an uh, impact on minority communities if this kind of legislation is uh, introduced and passed? Yeah, well, f- for for years now, we've we've known that you know certain groups of voters um, lack lack ID in comparison to others. Um, you know, when you look at things like possession of driving licenses, that's mm. far lower among, for example, black people than uh, among the white population. Um, when you look at uh, groups like disabled people, um, according to the government's, uh, the Electoral Commission's figures, sorry, um, almost one in 10 disabled people don't have identification. Mm. Um, there's a real class element to it as well. You know, it costs money to get photo ID. Um, you know, the price has gone up for, for getting a passport and, and driving license in, in recent years. Um, and so, yeah, it's no surprise that, you know, one in 10 people who are unemployed lack the acceptable ID. Those renting from, you know, a local council. Um, again, it's even higher at thirteen percent. So, you know, there there are really big variations in who has ID, and, and the government knows this. You know, they've known this from the start. Um, they conducted trials of the uh, voter ID policy a couple of years ago in, in, in a handful of sort of council areas, and um, you know, the electoral commission said that it wasn't clear yet, um, you know, who would kind of be hit hardest. Mm. 
Um, the government then went on to claim that their trials were totally vindicated and that there have been no evidence that people have um, you know, been disadvantaged. But you know, since then, we've seen time and time again, anytime new data comes out on possession of ID, you know, there are really, really big gaps between um, you know, the white Britons and, and, and others. So yeah, I think it's, well, I think what's most, most concerning about it is, as I say, that, that the government knows all this stuff um, and yet keeps you know, pushing on with it. And there are already, as I said, so many um, inequalities within our democracy, you know, big gaps that are similar to those I just mentioned in, in terms of voter registration, in terms of voter power, where your vote actually matters, people who live in marginal seats compared to, to safe seats. And, um, you know, these are just sort of being stacked on top of each other um, in a really, really um, undemocratic way. Mm. Um, now, one of the things you mentioned there is the amount of people that um, have voter ID and um, that the government knows that there are obviously quite a few, um, more than quite a few people who don't have um, valid ID for, for voting under their legislation. Now, one of the things I thought was particularly interesting that... Um, you posted on um, Twitter was a response to two petitions from the government. One, um, a petition arguing against um, compulsory voter ID, in which the government responded and said, oh, well, if, you know, most people have um, compulsory voter ID, it's fine, it's not a problem. And the other petition, uh, which was regarding ID used for social media accounts and um, arguing that for social media accounts, um, photo ID should be um, utilised to, to verify that they're real people. And the government responded saying, well, oh, there are um, about three million people who, who don't have um, uh, valid ID for that kind of thing. I mean, does this not demonstrate just how uh, much of a, a, a transparent attempt it is by the government uh, to use this type of um, legislation to perhaps not rig elections, but make it much more difficult for um, certain people to vote when they themselves recognise how many people would be disenfranchised if they were to introduce this legislation. Absolutely. I think, you know, that incident in particular was just one of these moments where you sort of, you saw the mask slip. Mm -hmm. um, and as I say, you know, this is coming from, from one department. They are openly admitting that 3.5 million people lack photo ID. And then, yeah, you know, in the same breath saying that, uh, oh, everyone's got ID uh, when it comes to voting at the polling station. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a classic case of uh, government departments not talking to each other first and foremost. <laughs> but also I think it just exposes the sort of brazen hypocrisy of this, of this policy. You know, we've heard at the dispatch box time and time again that people won't be disenfranchised, that everyone will be able to vote. And you know now, by the government's own admission, um, you know we we know that to be not the case. And um, yeah, another another line that I think is also worth challenging from the government is something we hear time and time again. You know they say that they're they're going to offer a, a free form of ID. Well, they actually had that in the voter ID pilots I mentioned a, a little bit earlier, and almost no one took it up. Um, and yet, still a thousand people turned up to the polling station without ID and were turned away. Mm. So. I think it just shows that so-called free ID, well, if you've got to turn up to a council office, you know, that travel there, it could be miles away if you live in a rural area, pay for your bus ticket, you know, you've got to go there between the hours of, I don't know, 3.30 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. on mm. every second Wednesday. <laughs> you can just see the kind of potential opportunities for, if not sort of deliberate gerrymandering, mm. then restrict, restricting access more and more. And so... You know, we're yet to see whether there's going to be national standards on this stuff. Mm. Um, what we know already from the legislation is that, um, you know, there's no form of digital ID that's going to be accepted. 
well, you know, the government are accepting vaccine passports for, you know, that are on your phone for getting into venues. So I think it strikes a lot of people as quite bizarre that they wouldn't allow a similar thing for, for your right to vote, which is surely, you know, more important than, um, than you know, going to a, a nightclub. <laughs> as much as I, you know, can't wait to get back to, to clubbing, <laughs> voting is quite important. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things that um, we've noticed as, as well in um, recent months in the US uh, have been Republicans attempting uh, to, to make it more difficult to, to vote in, in particular states. I'm thinking of um, Texas and, and some other states where uh, Republicans have been um, trying to pass um, voter ID uh, laws, which would make it uh, much more difficult for um, people who, who, who don't fit a particular criteria to vote. Do you think that this issue of voter ID falls into the um, wider so-called uh, culture war uh, that we have seen uh, erupting in both uh, the US and the UK political scene? I think it is, yeah. It's definitely taken inspiration from, you know, what's been going through in the US. And, you know, in the US right now, there are hundreds of pieces of legislation that are seeking to make it harder to vote on the basis of, you know, what's been branded a big lie about, a, you know, Donald Trump's lost election last mm -hmm. year. And, you know, although the government have been probably slightly less brazen in their rhetoric as some US Republicans. Mm. Um, you know, it's clear, I think, from, from the legislation that they've taken inspiration from what's been going on over there. Um, you know, the original name for the bill was the Electoral Integrity Bill. It's identical to the uh, name of the bill that was going through in Georgia. <laughs> um, no coincidence there. The current <laughs> name is uh, the same as the one that's going through in Texas. <laughs> and so, um, and you know, I've, I've spoken to people in, in the US and a US lawyer said, you know, the legislation itself looks like, um, you know, it's definitely taken, a, as I say, a leaf from the, the US voter suppression playbook. So it's something we do really need to be alert to. And of course, it's not happening in isolation. There, there's other stuff the government are currently trying to ramp through, which, you know, pose real threats to democracy as well. They're trying to change the voting system for mayors and police and crime commissioners. Um, basically removing people's ability to, to buy the second preference mm. what you're basically doing there is you know further destroying voter choice and and their chance of you know not not having to hold their nose every time they go to the polling station mm. um you know we're seeing changes to the electoral commission also in this legislation which is basically hitting them with a big hammer after um, <laughs> they've been fined uh you know accused of, of wrongdoing in the past um so I think, you know, this forms part of a bigger picture, um, as you suggest, of, you know, democratic backsliding, I think it's probably the best way to put it. Um, and I think the worry is that this is kind of the thin end of the wedge, you know, once you introduce a policy like voter ID, a dramatic change, probably the most fundamental change to our franchise in about a century, mm. you know, it doesn't take very much to just alter a bit of legislation here and there through Henry VIII's powers. You know, there's a huge amount of scope for, for ministers to kind of amend this at a later date. And I think we have to be really alert to that. And that's why, you know, we're, we're really stepping up and campaigning on this. And yeah, I hope, uh, I hope listeners and, and others will, will join that battle too. Mm, hopefully. Um, I'd just like to turn now um, to proportional uh, representation, which is again another um, uh, discussion that has been um, circling around British politics for a while now. Do you think that there is a particular type of proportional representation that, if implemented um, in the UK, say in Westminster elections, would uh, work best? 
Yeah, we um, we support the single transferable vote primarily at the Electoral Reform Society. It's a, a ranked choice voting system in, in slightly bigger seats. So you have a few representatives. And by doing that, you allow the result to be much more proportional. And of course, by being able to rank candidates, you know, you, as I mentioned earlier, you sort of eliminate that need to opt for a lesser evil every time you go down to the polling station. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not just something that we talk we've talked about. It's something that that we've won in Scotland for for local elections. Um, Wales has just allowed uh, councils to switch to uh, using STV following um, some of our campaigning there, and um, and yeah, you know, it's used for I think all, all elections in Northern Ireland. Um, but you know, we're we're not dogmatic. There's proportional systems being used across the UK actually at the moment. Holyrood elected by. Um, the additional member system, Welsh Assembly too, and, and the London Assembly. And um, we've actually got a new report which shows that, you know, after two decades of using PR in, in these um, representative bodies, the sort of impacts on voter representation, people feeling like they have a, a clearer voice, and, and, you know, that they're getting a diversity of, of voices in those mm. um, institutions, yeah, has, I, I think, become really, really clear. And, of course, it's a massive contrast to, to Westminster, where, you know, we have a one-party-takes-all voting system mm. where there's hundreds of safe seats and where something like a third of people every election um, feel like they have to feel like they can't vote for their preferred party. And I just think in a democracy, that is a real <laughs> indictment, actually. Yeah. Mm. Um, do you think, um, because this is an issue that has also been discussed in the in the Labour Party uh, quite a great deal, do you think that uh, STV would be uh, the type of... Um, proportional representation voting system that the Labour Party might support, or do you think that Labour would be more likely to support a, another system? Well, I think it's, um, you know, there's a, a wide range of sort of campaigners and a, a real growing movement for Labour to adopt proportional representation as, as policy at the moment. And um, that's that's been a really encouraging thing to see over the past year or two, actually, just how much support that's kind of been building. And, you know, any... Uh, a few months ago, Momentum uh, members voted over overwhelmingly uh, to, to back PR. They chose it as a, a priority issue. Of course, you know, joining groups like Open Labour who are campaigning this too. I think in terms of the actual system, um, Labour switched last year to using STV for it, electing its National Executive Committee. Um, then again, you know, Labour governments under, under Blair introduced, uh, you know, the Scottish Parliament and and Welsh Assembly, which use the additional member system. So I think there's probably a, a general um, inclination not to be too um, you know specific, not to get too bogged down in in what kind of system um, they adopt. Mm. Um, I think really it comes down to the sort of principles that the voting system um, embraces, and I think you know that principle of proportionality that seats accurately reflect how people actually vote at the polling station is is kind of the most crucial one, really. Mm. Uh, do, do you think that there will be uh, some point when um, uh, Labour perhaps campaign more uh, vocally for a, a change to the uh, electoral system and, and potentially um, are uh, either campaigning or part of um, some sort of like progressive alliance? Or do you think that the Labour Party, simply because of the, the way that it is structured and its history within British politics, is unlikely to um, perhaps be more vociferous with uh, those kind of things? I think there's always a sort of knee-jerk reaction to treat democracy as a kind of second-tier issue, um, and that you know that goes for um, the Labour Party and it goes for some other parties too. So I think the real challenge, kind of in the next year or two, is making it clear that 
so many of the failings in our in our politics and the issues that get heard um, in kind of where resources are directed um, and the cronyism we see you know in the halls mm. of power I think a lot of that does come down to you know how we pick our MPs mm. um, and when you look at kind of all the pork barrel politics of where this town fund money goes um, and you know a huge number of mm. sort of level up projects that actually just look like electioneering with the taxpayers funds um, yeah I think that that does make that come into focus quite clearly um, so yeah I'm, I'm optimistic actually that that Labour are waking up to the need for electoral reform um, as I say you know there's a growing movement in the party through Labour campaign for new democracy uh, there's a trade union campaign that's, mm. that's getting really active on this and you know I can really see this becoming a consensus issue you know the vast majority of Labour members support electoral reform now and um, and I think it's only really a matter of time that that, that the Labour Party gets on board with this. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, shortlists, what are what are your what are your thoughts on on them in terms of the the UK and devolved parliaments? Do you think that they should be um, purely uh, an internal sort of a CLP or um, local Conservative Party or local Lib Dem Party matter, or do you think that uh, perhaps more people in the uh, constituency in which these particular candidates are going to stand should have more uh, active role in, in, in the selection of, uh, of party political candidates, because that has been another uh, debate that has um, been uh, been going on for a, a while in terms of the actual candidates uh, who stand themselves for particular parties in particular constituencies and the level of um, interaction that locals within those constituencies have within the selection of the candidates or whether in, in certain instances they seem to be uh, parachuted in is I think the, the phrase that is uh, quite often used. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah well I think you know we'd never um, we'd, we'd always be in favour of sort of more more participation I think um, you know we're in a slightly different position in the UK to, to some other democracies and that we have a in a way, a very privatised party political system. You know, in the US, it's kind of, it's nationalised. They have state-governed mm. primaries that everyone takes part in. And, you know, I think from my personal point of view, I think, you know, that has its positives, but it also has its kind of, its negatives as well. Mm. There's always going to be, um, you know, small cliques of people that are kind of uh, dominating this this process. So I think it's it's definitely something that needs to be explored. I think... Um, you know, it's it's always encouraging to see sort of experiments in in doing open primaries here and, and seeing how that that turns out. Um, but yeah, whether it will be sort of adopted across the board, I think um, it's probably yeah a bit early to say. Mm. <laughs> um, well, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast. It's been wonderful uh, to speak with you, uh, and I have one uh, final question for you. Now, I hadn't realised until I started doing the research uh, for this episode that um, you're a musician who has uh, recorded a music released. Uh, songs generally uh, connected to sort of like the left and, and, and ballads as, uh, as such. And I just wondered that um, if you were able to record any song with any artist, uh, living or deceased, which song would you pick and uh, which artist would you pick to record with? <laughs> wow, what a question. I, I, I was not prepared for this one, um, but it's also very exciting. I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of Jeff Buckley. I think he would, he would have been uh, incredible to, to perform with. Um, uh, so maybe yeah, something like Live at Wine or something. Um, but uh, and Nina Simone as well. I think mm. uh, you know, I've just absolutely 
mouth for her voice it's incredible um so yeah i'd probably have to go for for collaborating with, with one of those two i think but um but yeah i think uh, a lot of a lot of the greats have sadly passed away but there's still a lot of good music uh, being made so um yeah who knows maybe i'll work with some interesting people in the near future absolutely hopefully you will well uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast if people want to find out uh, more about you or about the electoral reform society or your uh, campaign on voter id where should they go to to find these things out so you can go to um, electoral-reform.org.uk for getting involved in the campaign uh, against voter id and um yeah i'd really encourage people to to sign up and add their name in particular to the, the petition that's on there um we're going to do a big petition hand in in uh when, when we have the bill's second reading and it's yeah it's really important that as many people sign up to that as possible so get over there and uh and add your name and uh yeah we'll, we'll keep you posted about what's coming next fantastic thank you once again for coming on the podcast thanks so much great to join you